morning, everybody. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 24. We are going to begin there with our message for today. I believe that we have already wished you a happy Easter, but let me add to that as well. It's great to have so many people visiting us. I see many family, friends that are here for this special day. It's great to have you, and I hope it will be a, a very uplifting and rewarding for you. Uh, I did want to make a, uh, a little bit of an announcement here. Some of the teen girls are going to be selling chocolate Easter bunnies today. And uh, they are raising money to go to the teen camp. And so I would encourage you to consider participating. Now, Dr. Joe may not be very happy with me for uh, saying that. In fact, I'm going to continue. I want you, you may need to close your ears or uh, turn away during this part of the uh, morning here. Uh, I'm not sure where chocolate and Easter got intertwined, <laughs> but uh, if you're like me and you've grown up in America for many years now, the two have been inseparable. There were a, a lot of things about Easter that I liked, some things I didn't like. I think I may have mentioned to you before, my mother, bless her soul, insisted that me and my younger brother always had to dress up in pastel colors. <laughs> and as a young man growing up in the South, not being nearly as secure as I am now, uh, that was highly disturbing to me even offensive. On the other hand, we always had a great meal and we always had chocolate. Chocolate Easter eggs. Chocolate bunnies. I did a little research last night. I got actually a Facebook message from Sarah that she and some of the girls would be uh, selling these today. So I, uh, I did a little research uh, just to maybe perhaps promote what they're doing here. Uh, I found out that Americans love chocolate. <laughs> Apparently, Easter week is one of the most popular times of the year to indulge. Nearly 71 million pounds of chocolate candy are sold in the week leading up to Easter. Now, I'm assuming that's worldwide. Otherwise, that's about a quarter of a pound for every individual in America. So I'm, I'm going to assume it's worldwide. But maybe I'm wrong. I didn't really say that in the stats I looked up. Second only to Halloween, more than 20 million more pounds of chocolate are sold during Easter than on Valentine's Day. So I did a little more research to find out uh, why and uh, what would be the attraction. I found several quotes. There's nothing better than a good friend except a good friend with chocolate. Then I uh, found this quote from Lucy and Peanuts. Remember Lucy and Peanuts? All I really need is love, but a little chocolate now and then doesn't hurt. Hopefully that will encourage you. I found a, uh, I found a confession. Dr. Joe would appreciate this. I lied on my Weight Watchers list. I put down I had three eggs, but they were Cadbury chocolate eggs. <laughs> So 
Some other uh, diet tips I found and chocolate-related uh, chocolate Easter egg things. Uh, if you get melted chocolate all over your hands, you're eating it too slowly. <laughs> chocolate-covered raisins, cherries, orange slices, and strawberries all count as fruit, so eat as many as you want. <laughs> That's good, good healthy advice, isn't it? If you can't eat all your chocolate, it will keep in the freezer. But if you can't eat all your chocolate, what's wrong with you? <laughs> if calories are an issue, store your chocolate on top of the fridge. Calories are afraid of heights, and they will jump out of the chocolate to protect themselves. <laughs> I think I'm going to try that. Why is there no such organization as Chocoholics Anonymous? Because no one wants to quit. <laughs> and uh, finally, if you have a problem because you bought two pounds of chocolate eggs and you're concerned about driving them in a hot car and that they'll melt before you get home, the solution is eat the eggs in the parking lot. <laughs> so uh, there you go. Yes, let's, uh, let's go to the Bible. Are you ready for the Bible? I hope I've done enough to promote the chocolate sales today. There for a good cause. The uh, title of the lesson today is Never Say Die. And of course, as you might expect, it's a resurrection theme. It's a, the Easter story. Hopefully some great application to our lives. The main point, the resurrection means that there is always a reason for hope. Certainly that is true today, and Jesus gave us those reasons some 2,000 years ago. We know the Easter story, and I, I'm going to have to assume certain things as we go through this. I won't be able to have the time to read as many different scriptures as I want, but uh I think we are familiar with the Easter story. Jesus died, he was buried, he was physically raised from the dead. However, I think the question needs to be asked, do we really believe it? Or how much do we believe it? Because the truth is there are degrees of faith or belief that people have in the resurrection of Jesus. There's some people who clearly do not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. There are other people who are not sure if Jesus was raised from the dead. There are other people who hope that Jesus was raised from the dead. There are some others who think that Jesus might have risen from the dead. And then there's those that believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. I think you need to ask yourself where you fall sort of in that continuum. I believe that the people who do believe, and I do believe, that Jesus rose from the dead are noticeable and notable. Because their life will reflect that. There are people who are full of zeal about their Christianity. Commitment is not a problem. Passion is a reality. Sacrifice is easy. They dream, they live, 
They serve their world centers around Jesus, our resurrected Lord and Christ. Hopefully that's you today. And if not, you have a chance to make some good decisions. We already read, Marty did at the beginning of the service, if you hear, the beginning of the story there in Luke 24. It was the third day, the first day of the week. Mary and some other women show up at the tomb of Jesus. We won't read the account again. They show up, not because they're expecting to find that Jesus has been resurrected, but they are there as servants. They are there to prepare the body for burial. They show up and they're shocked to find the stone has been rolled away. Jesus is no longer present. They don't know what to make of that. An angel appears, proclaims that Jesus has risen from the dead just as he prophesied that he would. So let's pick up the story from there. Verse, getting older, verse 9 it is. You ever find out as you get older, it's a little harder to read those little verse numbers? I'm going to have to get a magnifying glass just to tell you which verse to turn to. So Mary and the woman, look what it says in verse 9. When the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. That's the faithful eleven apostles and all the others. Now, what would you have expected that their reaction would be? Don't you think they would have been excited? Don't you think they would have been thrilled and they would have even remembered the prophecies? Do you know that 18 times in the Gospels it is recorded that Jesus prophesied that he would die and be raised on the third day? That doesn't include, no doubt, that doesn't include all the times that he told his apostles that he was going to die and be raised on the third day. But surprisingly, perhaps shockingly, it seems it never occurred to them that he might actually rise from the dead. And so we see what happens here. It is both sad, but also knowing and loving the apostles as we do, not very surprising. What does it say? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, the others with them, told this to the apostles. So what was their reaction? They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. These are not women they were married to right here. I just want to point that out. That wasn't what was going on here. All right? They didn't even consider the possibility that this report was true. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Did you get that? I would have been more of encouraged if it had said he went, he saw the linens were not there, the body was not there, and he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. But it says he went away wondering what had happened. Sad, but not surprising. Are you familiar with the apostles of the Gospels? 
Now the ones that we see in the book of Acts and after that, they were an entirely different group. Same people, but they had undergone a radical transformation. Are you with me there? But, I mean, I don't think I'm being unfair. If we are to characterize the apostles of the Gospels, here are some of the words that I wrote down. Unstable. Lacking in faith. Unspiritual. Remember they were even arguing about, you know, who was going to be on the right or the left in the the throne right before the crucifixion. And last but not least, frequently confused. The fact that Peter didn't seem to have a clue as to what had happened, in spite of all the prophecies and evidence and the testimony of the women, is not especially surprising. Well, let's go on. And if you're one of those people that is slow to believe, perhaps the story of the apostles today will be an encouragement to you. Perhaps it will be helpful to you. I certainly hope that for all of us, our faith will be strengthened today in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we're going to skip around. We'll skip a little bit. We're going to continue in Luke 24. The next thing that happens is, is recorded, two disciples, unnamed, encounter Jesus on the road a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Initially, they are prevented from recognizing the risen Jesus for who he is. For whatever reason, they were prevented from recognizing him. So Jesus engages them in conversation, and they're very sad because they're disciples of Jesus, and Jesus just died. And he asks them, uh, really, what's going on? And he says this, they say this in verse 20. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over, Jesus, to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. If you ever looked at that phrase, we had hoped. I believe that phrase summarizes and describes what was going on in these disciples, what is going on, what's going on with the apostles, and what is frequently going on in our lives today. For three days, they had been mourning not just the death of Jesus, but the death of a dream. They had hoped, but now they felt like because Jesus had died, there was no more hope. I wonder if there's any here today who have lost hope. Perhaps you started out your Christian life with dreams, and yet along the way there have been trials, there have been disappointments, there's been suffering. In, in your own way, you've experienced your own crucifixion, and now you are left as these disciples were, and you speak of hope, and you speak of dreams, and even your faith in the Lord, in past tense, we had hoped. What do you feel hopeless about today? See, the resurrection means that there is always a reason for hope. Yet sometimes we no longer have hope. 
Sometimes we feel hopeless about our own salvation. We feel like we're too far gone. We can never make it back to God. Sometimes we feel hopeless about the sin in our lives. Sin is so powerful. Sin is so enslaving. My sin is so great. It overwhelms me. And we have no hope. Sometimes we look at our character and we see the things in our own life and we're disappointed and we may make some efforts to change and we don't see a change. And what can happen? We lose hope. Sometimes we lose hope for our own faith, that we could ever have faith, that we could ever recover faith, that we could ever build our faith. Sometimes we lose hope in other people, hope for other people. You know what I'm talking about? I believe in me, but you I am not sure about. We lose hope that our family and friends that are not yet saved can be saved. We lose hope that our neighbors or coworkers or people we haven't even met or people we share with on the street could be saved. And we're just like these disciples. We had hoped. But there's been a, our dreams have died. We lose hope that our friends in the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ can change and grow and mature. Sometimes we lose hope in our husband or our wife or our children. Have you lost hope today? Never say die. The resurrection means there's always a reason for hope. Look over in John chapter 20. We will close there. I'm going to close in just a few minutes my remarks, and then we're going to have a couple here. They're going to share about their experience of a resurrection in their lives. I think that's something we'll enjoy. But in John chapter 20, I want to finish up the story because I don't want to leave the disciples in such a bad shape. You know what I'm talking about? Because when we left them here, they were not looking very good. And in fact, as we start out this part of the story, they're still not looking very good. In John chapter 20, are you there yet? Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, okay, so it's Sunday night of the day that Jesus was resurrected, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Here are our heroes, huddled in fear behind locked doors. Seems like nothing yet has changed. Clearly it is not. But then Jesus shows up, and it says in verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You know what I like about this story? You know what it tells me? is if you're lacking faith this morning, if you've lost hope today, if you no longer believe in the resurrection power, Jesus wants to help you. 
I see over and over again in the Gospels in the account of the bumbling and fumbling keystone cops that we call apostles, the apostles of the Gospels. And I find great encouragement that in spite of all that they did to disappoint him and how slow they were to learn and how often they lacked faith, that Jesus still wants to help them, that Jesus still believes in them. And so he shows up. He appears among them, and now, finally, they believe. The story goes on. Do you know the rest of it? Doubting Thomas. You ever heard of Doubting Thomas? Thomas, he was in worse shape than the rest of his Bible talk. Because <laughs> he didn't even show up for the small group meeting. Now, the others weren't very impressive, they were huddled in fear behind locked doors, but at least they showed up that night. Thomas said, you know, I don't even, I'm not even going to show up. And I won't read the story, but he says, and they, in spite of their testimony, they all came to Thomas and said, you won't believe what happened. We now believe. We have seen the risen Savior. We have no doubts. He is raised from the dead. He's alive. He lives. Thomas said, I will not believe it. Unless I see it for myself and I put my hands in the holes, put my fingers and touch the hands, holes in his hands and also in his side from the crucifixion. And you know what Jesus does? What does Jesus do? He shows up again. You've got to give it to Jesus. I thank the Lord that he has so much patience with us. You know what I'm talking about? You mean, Thomas, you still don't believe after your own best friends, the other apostles have told you now? It's not just the women who seem like they were speaking nonsense. I see where some of you are going with that. Just leave that alone. It's not just them. The other apostles, no, no, he showed up. What did he think? They were lying. They were mistaken. Yet Jesus shows up again. Got to love that about Jesus. Then what does he say? Verse 29. Then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you believe in the risen Jesus today? Blessed are you. Do you believe in a resurrected Lord, a physically resurrected Lord today? Blessed are you. You know, Jesus, it was never part of the plan that every person who would ever come to faith in him would see him physically resurrected. In fact, as far as we could tell, a relatively small percentage of people, even though it was up to 500, according to 1 Corinthians 15, actually saw the risen Jesus. We have no record of anybody who wasn't already a believer, and I use that in quotations, who, who Jesus appeared to. Yet Jesus expects and Jesus knows that we have every reason to believe today 
even without seeing him physically resurrected. One of the reasons that I believe in the risen Jesus is because the apostles were so unconvinced that it would happen and they were so slow to believe that it would happen. Yet after they saw the risen Jesus, they never doubted him again. That's the apostles of the book of Acts. And you know the message they preached everywhere they went? It was of the risen Jesus. Shame on us. Sometimes we're ashamed to talk about it as if we're not sure that we want to tell people that we believe he's actually physically rose from the dead. That was the center of the gospel message. I read in a commentary that every single sermon in the book of Acts that's recorded by the apostles ends and the climactic point is when they proclaim that Jesus was crucified, but he is now risen from the dead. I didn't have time to research it, but I went through the first few chapters, and sure enough, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 5, you know what I found every time? They preached the risen Jesus. Never say die. The resurrection means... There is always a reason for hope. Why else? What else would explain the transformation of these apostles? Unreliable followers became fearless evangelists. Deserters became faithful martyrs, willing to be tortured and even die because of their convictions of the reality of a risen Savior. The same guys who were hiding behind locked doors on the night, the evening that Jesus was raised from the dead, unbelieving. They saw a resurrected Lord, and they were never the same. Common, ordinary men unleashed a spiritual revolution that saturated the entire Roman Empire and continues to forcefully advance in our world today some 2,000 years later. The risen Savior. I'm going to read one more scripture. Romans 8. And then we're going to have our sharing for today. Do you have a favorite resurrection scripture? Evidently not. I'm just going to take your silence as a, uh, as a no. Oh, we got a yes over here. Okay. I have a favorite resurrection scripture. Because for me, and I hope for you, it's not just a matter of believing in my mind and heart that Jesus was raised from the dead some 2,000 years ago. But what, that, what is that supposed to mean today? Is that, does that have a practical meaning in my life today? Romans 8, verse 11. I'm reading this out of context, but at least I told you that I'm doing it. You can go back and, re and read what's before and what after. I'll leave that to you. Do that. You can do that this afternoon when you're celebrating your Easter. 
after you have your big meal and your chocolate Easter eggs. <laughs> Romans 8, verse 11, Paul's talking about the power of the Christian life. And look what he says. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Do you see what that's saying? Have you ever grasped that? The power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, when you come to Christ and you embrace Christ and you're born again and you're baptized into him and you receive the Holy Spirit, that same power now lives in you. And your sinful flesh and your body which like Abraham's was as good as dead, now has the potential of life. And there's nothing that you can't do spiritually. There is no sin that you can't overcome. There is no character flaw that can't be corrected. There are no more excuses. Now, I don't know if that challenges you or encourages you. Because we're good with excuses. You know what I'm talking about? I actually heard of a brother the other day. You know, we've been preaching through David in our sermon series. If you're visiting with us today, come back next week because we'll be picking up the story of David again. But I actually heard of a brother because David's life is, there's so much obvious failure and sin that's there. I heard of a brother was told to me who was using the life of David as an excuse to continue in his own sexual sin. I don't know whether that's true or not. That's just, uh, and this particular person was working with them and challenging them about that. If that's true, how sad is that? But is that you? Is that me? We love to make excuses. Well, God made me this way. It's His fault. This sin is too powerful. I can't change. It's too much for me. Yes, you're right. It is too much for you. But you can change. And you can be different by the resurrection power of Jesus that is given to all who come to him and are born again. Right now I'm going to ask uh, Jonathan and Melody Mitchell to come and share about resurrection in their lives. John and Melody Mitchell. Good morning. Happy Easter. The Lord has risen. Um, it's an honor to be here today to share about our lives. Um, um, thank you, Risa. You know, it's interesting. Uh, first time I came to this church, when I saw a lot of okay, the mixed crowd and what have you, I thought, wow, this is so cool. You know, interracial couples and what have you. And I said, well, that's what Christianity should look like. Little did I know, okay, that 
couple years later on, we'll be the ones talking here, you know, <laughs> in front of you. So it's, uh, God is amazing. But um, anyway, I, I, I want to share first a little bit about my, uh, my background. You know, they talked a lot about family of origins. I appreciate what um, we shared. You know, it's one thing in my Christian walk is, yes, family of origin issues, factors, okay, you know, can explain, but I've learned one thing. There are no excuse. God gave us basically freedom of choice and will. But I have to be very candid with you, okay? It took me a long time to figure that out because of excuses. Because I blamed a lot of stuff that happened in my childhood. Very briefly, okay, at the age of three, my, my, my father um, abandoned us. Um, and uh, he left, okay, no alimony, no nothing. Um, I didn't get to see him for another 13 years. Um, Left to my, my mother's devices, my, my mom basically had to become a, uh, you know, a, 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 a workaholic, so to speak, uh, in order to, like, take care of us. And um, her being at home all the time, okay, basically spurred me to become what you call, okay, a latchkey kid. In other words, there was no structure whatsoever at home. I had surrogate parents. My mom, my mom was my nanny back, okay, in Africa back in those days, okay, labor is very inexpensive. Those were my, par- my parents. Uh, and uh, as a Lashki kid, I became very defiant, extremely okay, self-reliant. And one thing okay, I've learned, a spiritual mentor said, it took me a long time to figure this out, because our culture loves okay, to really talk about the virtues of self-reliance. But he said, self-reliance is God-defiance. Um, Anyway, uh, another trauma happened. I'm not going to go into detail, but it was a huge trauma, the type of trauma that t- typically take people out. I was only 10 at the time, and I became even more t- distrustful okay, about the world. I especially okay, started ha- harboring a lot of anger towards my mother. Why didn't she protect me from what had happened? Why didn't she, you know? And I, I, I harbored this for a long, long time, you know? So um, just quickly going through a lot of this, um, when I met my father 13 years, ago, uh, 13 years later when I was 16, uh, um, I had a very much love-hate relationship with him because of the abandonment. I saw my mother having suffered as a result of that uh, choice he made. And uh, interestingly, one of the things uh, that I learned about is that his whole thing in life was about being happy. That's why I left your mother, you know what I'm saying? My whole thing in life, okay, is just to be happy and what have you. And unfortunately, I bought into that lie. I bought into the lie, you know. And um, one thing, though, okay, that I really should have noticed is that out of 12 brothers and sisters, my aunt was the only one that had stayed in her relationship. All 11 people basically, okay, my father included, had all divorced their spouses. I learned at an early age, okay, divorce is okay. And very honestly, okay, I struggle with that, you know what I'm saying, even okay, as a Christian. Because I, you know, so moving forward, I got baptized in 1995, amen. <laughs> However, I will say, decades of a hardening was very, was, was challenging. You know, I was hardened by my sins, you know, lust, pride, arrogance, self-reliance, dishonesty, as a matter of fact, the secular education I had received at Berkeley did not help me whatsoever. It definitely did not help me want to readily embrace Christ. Um, anyway, I remember one day looking at the sin list, all right, in Galatians. And I said, oh, my goodness, uh, this is almost all of me here. <laughs> you know? 
Um, but then I asked for a miracle. I said, God, I know myself. I am hardened to the core. I have a hard heart. Uh, if you can soften my heart, I will trust you. And I did that every single day, you know, as we're studying the Bible and so forth. God, please soften my heart. And he delivered. And that's the reason, as a matter of fact, that's a miracle. I got baptized. Amen? <laughs> now, as a single, uh, after a few dates in the kingdom, I met this amazing woman. Yes, I was smitten. <laughs> smitten, you know. You know. Uh, fellow heads over heels. And I remember the first night of our date, I went in my car. I was so blemished. No one ever had my single dates in the world had written me a thank you note, you know. <laughs> thank you so much for the date. And so it's like, whoa. <laughs> so I prayed, God, please uh, help me become a Christian, a strong Christian man, so that I can spiritually lead this amazing woman. And sure enough, you know, in 1988, in 1998, uh, Reese was our minister, and, you know, we, we got married. <laughs> now, thank you. Our first six months, all right, were very blissful. <laughs> however, however, the honeymoon care was very short-lived because I had no clue that God was preparing for me Suffering and trials for over 10 years. A lot of my sins came back, and the trigger for us was we could not have kids together. And uh, after a year and a half of attempting naturally to have children, okay, we even tried three IVFs. Um, we had a miscarriage. It was devastating, and uh, I believe that that point... Uh, the thought was, God, you know, I have been faithful for 30 plus years. Why are you doing this? The seeds of bitterness and anger were, were there. Um, our relationship basically started really struggling and suffering. Um, I remember, as a matter of fact, uh, at one point making a decision. I'd gotten some advice, and uh, Tom and Mc Tom and Ed at the time were discipling us, and uh, we were in our room. And I'd made the decision, we cannot move forward okay, with having children until we stabilize our marriage. Our marriage was going down the tank very quickly. Tom said something okay, at that room, I would never, during that session, okay, I would never forget. The tension was, you could literally cut through it. He said, Jonathan, I feel the presence of demons in this room. There was so much anger and bitterness. We fought incessantly at the core my, my pride, self-righteous anger, my self-centered will as a latchkey kid came back with a vengeance. Um, around 2000 through 2004, Melly and I decided to move to the church in Northridge, as some of you may remember. It was a major spiritual mistake on my part in that, yes, I would go to church on Sundays. Yes, basically, I would go to the midterms, I mean, to the midweeks, okay. But I slowly started to disengage from this fellowship especially okay, from men where I could confess my sin. That was the beginning okay, of Satan attacking our marriage with a ferocity. Um, you know, um, further, you know, so further things moved on. Um, my anger, I, I had anger, anger issues. I had no clue. They came with a, you know, a vengeance. Uh, they totally blocked out God's grace and uh, his light. Um, 
I very rarely called my, my, my disciple partners, okay, you know, and let alone, okay, I rarely confess my sins. I was, we were both wounded. We were spiritually, emotionally, physical, physically, you know, just emotionally wounded. We sought out counseling from Jared the Sugarmans, the elders in the North region. Amazing couple, very powerful couple. Um, we also got, uh, we got to meet, okay, with a Christian counselor. I want to share something very personal I've not shared with a lot of people. Melody doesn't know this. During that meeting, one meeting, there was so much back and forth going on, a lot of fight, you know, just uh, altercations, verbal. Melody was upset. She walked away angry, closed, uh, shut the door, okay. The counselor, a Christian counselor, I had, looked me straight in the eye and said, Jonathan, I, I can't help you guys. Very probably you would need to separate. There was a Christian counselor that said that. Satan basically had his hooks in me because now I started basically rationalizing, I can leave, you know what I'm saying? It was not spiritual advice. It wasn't. Uh, my mind at some point was made up. Uh, I basically left uh, in December 31. I'm being very open here and vulnerable. On December 31st, 2008, I decided to leave Melody. I physically left her home, and, and in essence, I lived with my mom for almost an entire year. Um, my mind was made up. I was going to file for legal separation and basically for divorce. I believed uh, our marriage was dead. Dead. My heart basically was so cold and numb. The truth is uh, my heart was cold towards God. My anger, my resentments had taken over. In so many words, you know, uh, my emotions were running the show. Okay. Not okay God's will. I believe the emotions were basically the truth was a lie, you know, okay, by the evil one. It was not, okay. Jerry Sugarman's, however, okay, even though I had made up my mind, Jerry Sugarman's words kept haunting me. And he said, Jonathan, no matter how you think or feel, the fact of the matter is God's words do not change. God hates divorce. I am so grateful for you know, such okay, a godly man. Around November 2009, after close to a year of separation, uh, very close to basically filing uh, legal separation papers and divorce papers, God gave me the start. I know it's from God. He says, Jonathan, you need to call a friend of yours you haven't talked to in a long time. That friend was Mike Stephan. I'm very grateful. You see, I'd always respected Mike. He, he knew about us. You know, we're good friends. You know, when I was a single... He'd also seen right, a whole progression of our marriage. And uh, we sat down together, and I basically was about to tell him, I told him the, the impending doom. And I'll never forget this. Uh, he said 11 words uh, that I would never forget that basically got me to want to listen to what he had to say. This is what he said. First thing he said is, uh, Jonathan, I understand. I know what you and Melody have gone through. Having someone who can understand at least was the receptive thing, okay? It got me to be willing to listen. But then he said the next thing that honestly I did not want to hear. And he asked this question. And the question was, uh, Jonathan, have you asked yourself, have you asked yourself what is God's will for your marriage? I had told you, okay, that blocked it out entirely. Um, but someone deep down inside, I had this not, you know what I'm talking about? The Holy Spirit talking to you. And I basically grudgingly shared with Mike, okay, Mike, I'm willing to pray to God. 
I'm willing to make that prayer and ask him. That very night, I kept my commitment. And I prayed, God, please, one, you've done this before. Soften my heart. But please, let me know, okay, what is God's will for our marriage? And uh, something happened in December, and I'd like Mel to care to share. Okay. Good morning. Um, I can't, I have to read it. It's too emotional. Um, I'd like to talk about my heart for a few minutes. As human beings, we're very resourceful. We can survive on a little. That is the way I would um, describe how I became during the five years before we returned here to the Central. I never gave up on God, and I thought he would never allow our marriage to fall apart, but to get my whole heart, he had to allow that to happen. I can get by on um, second best for a very long time. I was not a gentle wife. I would argue to get Jonathan's attention. I accepted that, the, that we would have no children and many times would try to work on our marriage. We went to marriage counselors, but none of them worked. Our company started to have problems in 2005, and that was a major distraction from our marriage. Matthew 13, uh, 22, the seed falling among the thorns refu- um, refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. When we separated in 2008, I was mad because I felt I was being manipulated, but I always wanted to get back together. The Sugarmans did counsel us, and Jerry said, when one person loves, the other person loves. I wanted to be that person to start loving. I started fasting. It was month nine. At month 12, Jonathan said he just wanted to be friends. I hit my bottom, my breaking point. I cried out to God and started the love dare. The love dare is showing someone unconditionally that you love them. I took Jonathan to uh, two nights in uh, La Jolla at the Hilton. Um, The bill was $1,700. I cooked him homemade meals and took them to his mother's. We went to restaurants. I would initiate sex, and and he would say, no strings attached? And I would say, no strings attached. This is the way that I tried to get my marriage back together. I moved in with his mother. After 40 days of loving Jonathan, he said, I love you. My dad, who's a disciple, called it God's handiwork. Our story is really two love stories, Jonathan and me and God and me. I made a commitment then to have one hour with God every day. In 2010, I only missed 14 days of not going for one hour. In 2011, 42 days of not going for one hour, and this year, 12 days. God breathes new life into me every day. I live out James 1.19. Everyone should be slow to speak and slow to become angry. God and I are dancing now. He's holding me very tight, and many times my feet are off the ground. It's a black tie affair. I would quickly wrap up here. 
Um, Melly talked about the love there, by the way, okay. She talked about the, 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 the Vanuka Loyola. I knew God was transforming Melly because she had always been cheap. <laughs> I go, <laughs> During the next weeks, you know, we really went after our relation with God very quickly. Malachi 3.7 says, return to me and I return to you. We basically, basically turn over our, our wills over to God, you know. My, however, I'll say one thing. My Alaskan kids still wanted to run the show. We basically let shed our sins. We let go of things like, my, started to let go of stuff like lust, pride, you know, anger, resentments, uh, our idols, okay, our business, and all those things, okay. We asked for forgiveness. That was the key for me. I had to basically forgive my father for the abandonment, my mother, okay, for having basically not protected me, and obviously, okay, Melody and I had to forgive ourselves. Uh, daily quiet times, fellowshipping with brothers and sisters, and basically praying for God's grace. And okay, here's how the miracle worked, happened specifically. While on a date on January, or February, Melody probably know the date and time. <laughs> I turned towards Melody, and I never would have thought this would have come out of my words, my mouth. But I looked at her after she had done the love dare. and said, Melody, I love you. And I felt it. Uh, and I meant it. That was a miracle. God had moved. Um, brothers and sisters, I felt, I felt the change. You know, This is our testimonial of how God okay, can resurrect uh, for his glory. Right? A broken soul and hardened heart and a dead marriage. I would like to leave you with the scripture in 1 Corinthians 6.14. Another one who okay, cares the resurrection, my favorite resurrection scriptures. Yeah. You don't need to turn there. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, uh, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Thank you. Very proud of Jonathan and Melody for uh, sharing their story, but also I have an idea of uh, just how much of a miracle it was that their uh, marriage was able to come back together and for them to give God the glory like that and let God work in their life. Hopefully, it'd be an encouragement to all of us. Never say die. Resurrection means that we always have hope no matter what the circumstances of our lives. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Thank you for Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Not just what it meant 2,000 years ago, but what it means to us today. We pray to live pleasing lives, to live according to your will, to live resurrected lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.